0: This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we're rounding up recent happenings and releases in the design world. We'll hear from Mark Newson, a designer who holds an impressive world record and who has recently designed a new range of products for everyday use. Plus, we'll hear a take on why the French are leaders when it comes to handicrafts and hear how a family heirloom inspired the design of a new alarm clock which will be hitting bedside tables soon. All that, coming up on Monocle On Design. Australian-born, UK-based designer Mark Newson works across a range of disciplines, from furniture and luxury goods to technology and transport. Over the span of his 30-year career, he has served as creative director of Qantas Airways and helped to design Apple Watches. His iconic Lockheed Lounge from 1988 has also held the world record for the most expensive item sold at auction by a living designer. It's a pedigree that makes us particularly excited about his latest venture, a series of bathtubs, shower sets, basins and vanities for UK-based bathroom brand Drummonds. To find out more about this collaboration and how he approaches the design of everyday objects, Monocle's executive editor, Nolan Giles, caught up with Newson at the product launch and started by asking how his practice has changed over the last few years. I must be honest and say that it's it's been a bit of a struggle. I mean design, particularly
1: when you work within the kind of environment, and I'm talking, you know, my immediate sort of professional environment, it's been very difficult because it's a very one-on-one situation. I rely on a lot of human interaction. Obviously that hasn't been possible. We work with certain types of equipment, computers, software, that simply are not logistically not easy to transport around. Visualising things, which is obviously the most important part of, of our job, is not so easy, as easy as you think, to do remotely, actually. It's very hard to sort of design things on Zoom. It's very difficult to be spontaneous. You find that you have to do meetings, for an hour or something, then you kind of go away, you do your thing, and then you kind of reconvene, look at it, and and you, you lose that, that really, really important sense of spontaneity. But thankfully it's changing now. We're moving back to, I think, I feel like we're moving back to the way we used to. My studio's full again, and it feels like we're over it, at least in the UK.
2: We're in London, and we're sitting in a room hidden from a big uh, launch party for a new product so what are we doing and uh, can you set the scene a little bit for us wow so what are we doing we're sitting in a little room
1: we're surrounded by lots of windows looking out into a showroom in Chelsea I guess and this company Drummond's manufactures and sells in this very showroom things for the bathroom I guess sinks baths taps and all of that kind of stuff which sadly I'm kind of really into <laughs>
2: <laughs> Cause this is what I heard I heard that you were originally a customer here you love what they did but you were quite a fussy customer you asked a lot of questions you maybe like criticized a few things about the, the way they were producing I don't, I don't know and then it came full circle and they asked you to design a, I guess, a bathtub and, and more for them so what's the truth behind that story Well,
1: there's an enormous amount of truth behind that story. I mean, the reality is that, sadly, when I go into a shop, I'm faced with spending my hard-earned money. (laughs) Um, You know, I I find it really remarkably difficult to find things that I like. You know, there are lots of things that are almost the way I want them to be, but not quite. So I suppose with Drummond's, I made it clear that I I could sort of offer my, you know, my services were, were... at their disposal if they were interested in working with me and, and, and that's what we did we, we started doing this project together and of course it always helps if you're a a consumer which I am and of course a client but you know I get the quality and, and, and I think you get what you pay for yeah. so I understand the ethos of um, you know we, we the values of uh, the values of companies are important to me and the values of this company are really good I think that they make high quality merchandise that's obviously costly but it's not you know hopefully not going to end up as landfill which is always my litmus
2: test yeah yeah and i think it's interesting i've been to a few like taps and toilet fairs in in my in my time but what's interesting about creating something like this you're designing something that no matter what is going to get used every day, hopefully. So you're in a position where you're kind of dictating, you're not encouraging people to use the product, you're making the product as enjoyable as possible for the short amount of time or the long amount of time that they're going to use it. So what were the considerations like with regard to that and how have you kind of mastered it with this product? Ultimately, it's
1: about offering a choice because you know, ultimately all I'm offering is a different product so you know and a different product for somebody like me and I'm I guess there's a few other people like me out there and it's 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 as simple as that really you know I don't want to add to the sort of plethora of, of stuff yes and they are toilets and taps and sadly I've designed gosh this is my third range of toilets and taps that I've designed in my career so somehow this stuff sort of follows me around <laughs> but uh you know this is a small company but it's a nice company and I think it's really important for designers to embrace not only a broad range of products and sort of typologies of Mm. products but different levels of of products you know I don't you know ideologically I think it's really healthy you know to address all of these things and to solve all of these problems
2: whether it be for a few people or a lot of people Mm. cool and how does that work when you're thinking about the home and function how do you kind of think about this how do you work with your team to come up with the best solutions like when you're when you're really thinking about function in the home like what's your approach?
1: Function in the home is really really critical function anywhere is is really really important and I think again going back to what I said before about being a consumer is really really important you know I'm a, not only a consumer but I'm a user you know I'm a I'm a normal person in the sense that I use all of these things right so if a cooker or a toilet that I design doesn't really work properly then you know I can feel the the pain as well as anybody and and get the flack so it's really important you know of course to solve problems but to make sure that these things all work and um and and nothing makes me happier than knowing that a using my own products and living the way that they work and living the fact that they hopefully you know improve my mood you know on some sort of microscopic level every, every time i I touch a light switch or, mm-hmm. or use the bath or use a cooktop or, or whatever. But, it, you know, it all kind of comes back to quality, I guess, for me, and doing things, at least fitting or, or, or attempting to do things in a way that you think is proper and sort of honest and qualitative as well. Because I just, I, you know, I, obviously I love, not obviously, actually, but I do love... The idea that things will last and, and making something once and, and the idea that you could, you know, potentially keep it for a relatively long period of time. My thanks to
0: Mark Newson there. Now, many of us have homes filled with objects that inspire us and hold meaning. Perhaps you have a piece of furniture that's a family heirloom handed down from generation to generation. You might enjoy its form or materiality and maybe you dream of making a modern iteration inspired by it. This was the case for Liz and Borger, who, growing up, was always enamoured by her grandmother's compact travel alarm clock. Frustrated at the fact that she couldn't find a modern take on the clock for herself, she set out to create one, establishing Borger and Sauner. The Swedish company offers a collection of clocks inspired by the triangular pyramidal form of the timepiece that used to adorn the bedside table of her grandmother's hotel rooms when travelling. And, very soon, a new iteration called the Thunderbolt will be hitting bedside tables. To find out more about the story behind the brand and how her grandmother's clock inspired it, we checked in with Lyssen.
3: We are flirting with um, the old travel alarm clock that used to be very popular in the beginning of the 19th century, the triangular one that I think many people do remember some, somewhere and you can find in uh, secondhand shops sometimes. They do often tick and they don't have a light and they don't have a snooze. The travel alarm clock that she had was one of those that you could fold, you fold in the actual movement inside a little box. And then you could stand it up and you can turn it down. So you could travel it with it. So it was always, the the clock was always safe inside its little box in itself. I felt that I needed to have an alarm clock in my home because um, as I love interior decoration and uh, every object that I bring into my home, it's kind of chosen. Maybe it's not always the most beautiful one, but it's something that I have a personal attachment to. and I feel that when I decorate my home, you know you spend a lot of money and time on different objects and into your <laughs> alarm clock, I couldn't find a nice one. I feel that I have an urge to reclaim some of the space in life for me. In terms of, you know, this the smartphone, it's a fantastic uh, thing to have. It facilitates life in many ways. But it does sometimes interfere also in your personal space. You never get, you know, any space for yourself entirely so i remembered my old grandmother and the triangular travel alarm clock and that's how it all started and i met the designer called federico casado and he is a watch expert and has visited all the major clock houses in the whole of europe When first we were designed, we did a triangular, modern triangular one, which is a dream. But we could not fit everything inside. The movement, the lines would not be very nice. So we did instead the table alarm clock. We just cuffed off the top, more or less, from the travel alarm and made it more like a standing table alarm clock and we realized that it's really beautiful like that too we wanted to use premium materials and build something that would last a lifetime so the same way that when you buy a beautiful uh, watch something that it should endure for a long time there's no there should be no time limit on, on 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 a clock like this, and if you work with real materials, they age beautifully over time. I mean, when you start to go into designing, and and you of course have a list of of a wish list which is endless, but actually it all comes down to what's actually critical, and that is to be able to snooze, to have the light, and to have the mild version is that you start with a, a soft sound that increases in intensity and in four different levels. So we have a four-step crescendo alarm that you could snooze. And that is kind of the basic thing that we, we cannot have a connected phone. So which is if you want to, everybody wants to have their own sound, you have to be connected. And the whole idea is actually to be disconnected, to reclaim a bit of personal space in your home.
0: My thanks to Liz and Borgay there.
4: It's Monocle's 15th anniversary, so come and celebrate with us in San Moritz, high up in the Swiss Alps. Join Tyler Brulé, Andrew Tuck, our editors, and me, Georgina Godwin, from the 1st to the 3rd of April for a special weekend of talks, walks, drinks and dancing. You'll also meet celebrated Dutch writer Ilya Leonard pfeiffer author of the bestseller Grand Hotel Europa. We'll debate the future of the continent with the author and discuss the state of the media with our editors at San Moritz's own Grand Hotel, Sivretta House. We'll dance until late at the Dracula Club, sample the best of Engadine Hospitality and host a live edition of Monocle on Sunday. And they'll be skiing on offer too – as well as a special spring preview of our latest collaborations from our pop-up shop at Super Mountain Market. We'd love you to come to our high-altitude spring weekender, though places are strictly limited, so sign up soon through the events section of our website. See you in San Moritz at the Monocle Weekender.
0: a designer's work can almost always be improved by the craftspeople around them. In countries like France, that have a strong culture of state-supported craftspeople, many designers take half-finished ideas to those skilled in handicrafts, where the designer and maker then work together to finesse the product. It's with this in mind that I set out to meet Lily Frolescher, Managing Director of The Invisible Collection, an international retailer with French roots that sells custom handmade furniture. I caught up with her at the brand's new showroom in Marlebone to find out about the space and why the bulk of the collection's wares come from France.
5: Invisible Collection is an online platform that sells the custom furniture of the best interior designers and artists. A lot of them are French, but we try to represent from all over the world. So we also work with Italians, Portuguese, Chinese, Lebanese, American designers. We sell online, but... I'm happy to welcome you in our new headquarters in London, which we use as a showroom to meet our clients as well. And we'll be opening a space in New York uh, very shortly as well, and hopefully in Paris in a few months.
0: Amazing, and yeah, we are obviously in this new showroom space that that you talked about. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the building and, and I guess the purpose of this? You mentioned, you know, the invisible collection is online based, but you've obviously got physical spaces. Why? And yeah, tell us about the space.
5: Yeah. So this is a muse house, which is typical London architecture. When I moved to London 10 or 12 years ago, I had a Swedish boyfriend at the time, and um, he told me that his dream in life was to, well, the way that he envis- envisioned himself growing up was to live in a muse house. And I had no idea what a muse was. So he took me on a trip of, you know, South Kensington and all of the mews in West London. And um, I just discovered this new type of architecture that was very foreign to me because I was living in Farringdon and the city. So I'm very happy that we are now in a muse house in the center of Marylebone. This space for us is a very big step of um, the way that the Invisible Collection is growing and uh, where we're going. We are a five year old startup. Obviously, it's a luxury brand, but it's privately owned and privately funded. So I think we've been very street smart until now. We've moved at least seven or eight times in the past, and this is really our new permanent home uh, which is a space as you can see that is two floors of showroom space where we meet with clients so they can come and see the pieces that they wish to see and they also see pieces that they wouldn't have noticed on the website and there's also a very extensive collection of samples which they can browse through. It's a collaborative space. We've noticed that clients are actually coming here for you know two to three hours. They're bringing their own clients as well because we're very much a B two B business. It's a wonderful space to see our clients, but it's also most importantly a space where our teams can now meet and reunite after such an incredible two-year period where we were working completely remotely with teams all over the world and we've never been that efficient but i think bringing our teams back into a common space has really brought back this feeling of being united and very much like a family
0: I mean, firstly, it sounds like your Swedish boyfriend would be very jealous of where you're, or ex-boyfriend would be very jealous of where you're working right now. But why are, are such physical spaces important when you are selling, you know, furniture, design, craft? Can you elaborate a little bit more on that?
5: Yeah, it's very interesting because when we created the Invisible Collection, we created it as an online business. And the idea for that was not to have any borders and barriers. We wanted to be able to deliver immediately all over the world and actually our first sale was in Singapore you know it was this Italian guy working in the luxury industry in Singapore so the online space totally made sense for us however we also noticed that actually most of the clients that buy on the Invisible Collection browse online but there's a moment there's this drop-off where they actually really feel like they need to speak to a human being so they will speak to our design advisors and then purchase the number or the volume of people who go on the website and purchase without speaking to us is very, very small. So it absolutely makes sense for us to have places where we can actually meet and create relationships with our clients.
0: I mean, you talked earlier about, you know, having an international, I guess, roster of designers that you work with. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How do you you select them? How do you Mm. choose who you want to partner with?
5: Yeah, that's a question that we get asked a lot. And the answer is actually not that straightforward. Uh, There's no recipe for, you know, why we would choose a designer. I think it's very much the eye of my business partners, Isabel and Anna. And they look at the designer, they look at their work and they see, do we find that their work is relevant culturally? Is it handmade? Is there space for custom requests? And also, is the designer cultivated, you know, is his work pursuing or continuing the tradition of decorative arts? There's this saying that, you know, no design is uh, amnesiac. And I think it's important that we only work with people who actually know the history of design and the history of art, so that they're bringing their brick to it, but with the knowledge of what they're designing. So... Perhaps one thing that actually brings them all together and is very common to all of the designers that we work with is that they design their furniture with an actual pen and a paper. And that, I think, brings an element to the designs that we represent that is very different from pieces that have been designed with CAD and with, you know, with 3D models, etc. So I, I don't know if this answers your question, but uh, perhaps just... Is it culturally relevant? Is it handmade? And does the designer have the craftsman and know how to actually produce these pieces?
0: I mean, I wanna ask, you're talking about the craftsman there. Mm -hmm. Does access to good craftsmen also improve design? And does that sort of vary Country to country, like a, a, a perhaps French designers more lucky in that they there are perhaps more ateliers, more you know gifted craftspeople in that country, perhaps by government support versus a, a British designer. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
5: I think in France we are very lucky, but it's not only luck. It's also because the luxury industry is one of the biggest industries in our country. Right? It's over a million jobs in France, and I think. Bernard Arnault, uh, you know, the the, the owner of LVMH, I, I think that he's the most, the richest man in France. So that says a lot about the luxury industry and the government, these corporations, you know, everybody in France knows that the luxury industry is such an important factor of our image, but also our economy. And therefore, they need to support craftsmanship because luxury holds on these makers. It exists only thanks to the fact that we have all of these crafts and these savoir-faire and these know-hows that have been transmitted since Marie-Antoinette to today. So we're definitely very lucky with the fact that the government supports education, training, there's prizes, there's labels, there's grants, there's economic support for these craftsmen and for this industry. So we are lucky, but it's also just a huge industry. And I think the whole economic setup and the whole country supports craftsmanship. And therefore, the craftsmen have the confidence and just the passion. And they feel recognized for their skill. So that's yeah, that's probably something that's quite wonderful and, and enables us to continue. But going back to your initial question... I think there's one prize that I really love in France, which is called the prize for the intelligence of the hand. And I think what we see in our industry is that it really is all about the marriage of the intelligence of, the mind or the creative intelligence of the designer that meets the intelligence of the hand. And I have this very, very simple example of Pierre Yovanovitch, uh, who's a designer that I very much admire. And um, he came up with a very simple idea, which was designing a round cushion. So it would be like a tennis ball upholstered in fabric. So he went to the craftsman at Les Ateliers Jouffres in Lyon, the best upholsterers in the world, in my opinion. And he said, okay, could you please produce this tennis ball looking cushion for me? It needs to be a perfect circle. And the craftsman said, no, that's impossible. I can't do that. And actually, I really insist that you try at home, uh, because it looks like a very simple idea. But I'm seeing so many knockoffs all over the internet. And I only know that they're knockoffs, because they're not round, right. And Going back to the story, they said, no, we can't do that. M- mathematically, cannot work. And after six months of, you know, trying and doing research and mathematical research, they managed to do this perfect, perfect ball. And this just shows that with a very simple idea, you actually need to have the intelligence of the hand as well because otherwise it just won't work.
0: You talked about, you know, Pierre working with these craftspeople Does that elevate his work too, I guess, is my question. Like him having access to these craftspeople, him being able to talk to them about how they can do it, actually sit down and and solve problems. Does that make him a better designer as well?
5: Definitely, absolutely. I mean, he pushes the boundaries of the craftsmen, but they also, I mean, his work would not exist without them. It's very collaborative and um, they definitely absolutely have to meet and I don't think that he would even be a designer if he didn't have the means to produce his vision and I think the craftsmen always come up with better products and better pieces when they're working with a talented creator I don't believe so much in the craftsman who tries to be an artist or who tries to be a designer I think it really is about the two meeting.
0: My thanks to Lily Froelicher there. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle On Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Today's show was produced by Charlie Filmercourt Court and Maylee Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from Chris Oblacqua. I'm Nick Manise. Thanks for listening.